Welcome back. This week, we are talking about something other than the Murdoch trial on this podcast. And if you've been missing my day-to-day coverage of the Murdoch trial, we are in the final week. And the day this drops, everyone said they would be wrapping up the trial, but we'll see if that actually happens. And we'll know then. So if you're not following me along there on YouTube, head on over there for that coverage. But today, we are talking about what's going on in the Rust case and South Park is getting sued. I don't even remember when I started watching South Park. I remember watching it quite a lot during law school and have recently seen it back in the news. Um, And South Park is being sued. It's an interesting suit. So we're going to take a look at that complaint as well. But first, we have so much to cover with Rust. Charges being dismissed, kind of. Everybody entered their initial pleas in court. Alec Baldwin sent a very strong signal with his uh, with his plea, and well, we need to talk about it. So you know what? We should just get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. Through six weeks of trial, I have needed my morning routine to be fast, easy, and on point. And Thrive Cosmetics has absolutely been a part of that. Thrive is certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, and their products are made with clean, skin-loving ingredients without compromising performance. And the performance that I have been living for is the Infinity Waterproof Eyeliner. It is a waterproof eyeliner, but it's easy to remove at night and it doesn't sink into the edges of my eyes. Dare we call them crow's feet, maybe. It has a built-in sharpener and an angled smudge tip for a smooth, effortless blend that I really enjoy to get a little more of a smoky liner, but it has high impact pigments, so it's very easy to just swipe on. This eyeliner has more than 5,000 gold star reviews and cause is in the name for a reason. Through over 300 giving partners, Thrive Cosmetics gives back. You have to try Thrive for yourself. Right now, you can get an exclusive 15% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash lawnard. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash lawnard for 15% off your first order. Let me know what you decide to try. All right, let's get back to today's episode. First, to get caught up on Rust, the criminal charges were filed at the end of January. There have been a number of motions filed by Baldwin's lawyers, including a motion to recuse the special prosecutor, which is actually something I'm really interested to see the court address because it's a very interesting separation of powers argument because the special prosecutor is also a state legislature. So that's like nerdy next level stuff that you never even see in cases like this that I'm really just fascinated to see what the court's going to do with it. But I covered that in the last Rust episode. Then we have Baldwin and Reed both entering their not guilty pleas in court. And we're going to talk about that. But then also an announcement that Rust is going to resume filming in the spring, but they're not going to be filming in New Mexico. I'm shocked. Sarcasm. (laughs) Sarcasm. I'm not surprised at all, but they are going to be filming on the Yellowstone Film Ranch in Montana. 
The announcement did not make clear whether Baldwin will resume filming, but it seems that he will be based on prior announcements. So we're just going to have to wait and see. But this is still set to film in the spring of 2023. Yes, it was supposed to resume filming in February of 2023. Clearly, with the criminal charges and the uh, hostility of the state of New Mexico, they needed to find somewhere else to film. I don't even know if they would be able to get insurance in New Mexico after the New Mexico Occupation um, Health Safety Bureau scathing report about the safety issues on Rust and the fines and things that were issued there. I don't know if they really could resume filming. And if Baldwin's still attached, how are they going to work insurance with all of these lawsuits still pending to finish this film? I just don't know. I just don't know how that's going to work. It seems like it is practically going to be quite difficult. The last episode I covered with Rust, I left off with Helena Hutchins, mother, father, and sister suing Alec Baldwin. Shortly after that lawsuit was filed, the gun enhancement was dropped in the Rust case. And that's the first thing we're going to take a look at. I saw a lot of the headlines that charges were dropped. And I think there's some confusion over what an enhancement is and is not and how that affects the charges. Because again, there's really one charge in this case pled two ways. So it's two charges, but they're in the alternative, meaning the jury, if it ever goes to a jury, could find one or the other on different theories, but not both, if that makes sense. So this is interesting that they're talking about the enhancement as a charge. It's not a separate charge. It is something that adds sentencing time to the existing charges. And when I was originally researching this, because all of the media was like, he's got this five-year weapon enhancement. I'm like, that doesn't even make sense under the law that I looked at. So I had been waiting to see the actual formal charging document, because even though everybody was running with it, I still had questions about it. And I was like, look, I see a three-year that makes more sense, but it doesn't really fit perfectly under this particular charge. Because again, we're dealing with a, a negligent homicide charge. So we're not dealing with a charge where somebody is, is intentionally doing an act. They've done something so recklessly that the thing has happened. So having weapon enhancements under the laws that I researched didn't fit well, but that three-year enhancement seemed to fit better than any five-year enhancement that I could find in my own research. But they did charge a five-year weapon enhancement when the official charges came out in January. And so people are like, oh, Baldwin's facing five years because the weapon enhancement carries much more time than the underlying charge, which is an 18-month max charge. Though I will remind you that when the prosecutor spoke about this case in one of the many interviews before these charges dropped of signaling that charges are coming, charges are coming, charges are coming, it was that they were not seeking custody time in this case. The prosecutor was seeking really to uphold the laws of the state of New Mexico, and they said to make sure that justice is sought for Helena Hutchins and that everyone is treated the same under the law, whether you're a celebrity or not. So even though they added that five-year enhancement that would bump the, the count from whatever the maximum is, which looks like 18 months, and then add the five years on top of that, and then 
a lot of those enhancements end up being mandatory charges. So if you have a weapons enhancement, depending on the jurisdiction, it can be a mandatory amount of time. So it's something prosecutors can add and then remove in a plea deal or or remove later, or a jury cannot find it if it goes to a jury trial. But in this case, they had included the five-year weapon enhancement for use of a gun with relation to the underlying involuntary manslaughter charges. However, Alec Baldwin's attorneys filed a motion saying, hey, this five-year weapon enhancement didn't become law until 2022, and the shooting on the rust that happened in 2021. If a law does not specifically apply retroactively, you can't use a 2022 law to punish someone for something that they did in 2021. And there are limited laws that allow you to kind of reach back in time, especially when there's modifications to things like statutes of limitations. Those things can allow you to kind of go back and retroactively apply it. But when we're dealing with this type of charge, it would be very unusual for it to actually legally, properly apply retroactively, but they applied the 2022 enhancement to the 2021 charge. Normally, you would only apply the law as it stood at the time that the incident happened. So let's take a look at reporting from ABC News about this. The Santa Fe District Attorney's Office announced Monday, and this was Monday, February 20th, it is dropping the gun enhancement charge, a crime. It's actually an enhancement, not a separate crime. An enhancement, I'm going to relanguage it a little bit, an enhancement that would have carried a five-year sentence if convicted. I mean, up to a five-year sentence. Well, no, that's not accurate. The sentencing is all or none on an enhancement like that. Some enhancements have a staggered sentence where it's like two, two years, three years, five years. This is just five years, so it's all or none. But it could have been none just as well as it could have been all in this circumstance. Baldwin still faces the charge of involuntary manslaughter for the shooting. That carries 18 months if convicted. The amended complaint was filed late Friday. The charge was also dropped. And again, the enhancement was also dropped against Ken Gutierrez-Reed. This is the statement from the Santa Fe district attorney. Quote, in order to avoid further litigious distractions by Mr. Baldwin and his attorneys, the district attorney and special prosecutor have removed the firearm enhancement to the involuntary manslaughter charges in the death of Helena Hutchins on the Rust film set, end quote. And then it resumes with, the prosecution's priority is securing justice, not securing billable hours for big city attorneys. Look, there's a whole lot of prosecutorial sass wrapped up in that. And while I generally appreciate a whole bunch of sass, you know I live for some lawyer sass. Give me a sassy footnote any day and I will I will give you snaps for a sassy footnote. But this is way too much sass when it was a charging error. This was not a, oh, the attorneys are whining. You can't do that. You can't charge the law that didn't take effect until May 2022 to an October 2021 crime. What you can't do. So to be like, we don't want to secure billable hours for big city attorneys. You shouldn't have charged it in the first place. Charge, look, look, I can't with this. The district attorney in Santa Fe has signaled for months that they were going to charge Baldwin, asked for over $600,000 
in additional uh, fees or additional funding so that they could go after up to four individuals to be charged with regard to the Russ shooting. They had to send weapons out to the FBI. They brought in other, clearly other agencies to help investigate. They are up against a high-powered defense law firm and Baldwin who has resources and isn't having to ask anyone to bring in those resources. But they should never have charged that sentencing enhancement. A defendant shouldn't have to file a motion to remove a sentencing enhancement that legally can't be applied anyway. It's an error on the prosecution's part. And so to sass back at the defense attorney and be like, well, we don't want to secure their billable hours for their big these big city attorneys is kind of ridiculous for me. Don't overcharge it. And Baldwin is still contending that this is overcharged anyway, and he never should have been charged with involuntary manslaughter. And they've let A.D. Dave Halls plea to a misdemeanor um, with recklessness with regard to a firearm. So uh, on this, I don't fault Baldwin's attorneys at all. And I'm kind of put off a bit by the super sassy media release by the prosecution when they were wrong in this. Let's look at the rest of what they said. The article from ABC News goes on to say the decision to drop the charge was a win for Baldwin, who makes his first appearance in court on Friday. I mean, I guess it's a win. It never should have happened. So it's it's a correction, of course. This is what should have been. This is correcting to where the charges should have been in the first place anyway. Baldwin's legal team filed a motion on February 10th, arguing that the five-year gun enhancement didn't apply at the time of the shooting, writing, quote, the prosecutors committed a basic legal error by charging Mr. Baldwin under a version of the firearm enhancement statute that did not exist on the date of the accident. The accident occurred in October of 2021, and the current version of the law did not take effect until May 2022, and they are correct. Weeks prior, Baldwin's legal team filed a motion to disqualify Andrea Reeb, the special prosecutor, and we covered that in my last episode. After the motion to dismiss the gun enhancement charge, the district attorney released a statement that also criticized his, quote unquote, fancy attorneys, quote, another day, another motion from Alec Baldwin and his attorneys in an attempt to distract from the gross negligence and complete disregard for safety on the Rust film set that led to Helena Hutchins' death. This is a statement coming from Heather Brewer, the spokesperson for the New Mexico First Judicial District Attorney. It went on to say, in accordance with good legal practice, the district attorney and special prosecutor will review all motions, even those given to the media, before being served on the DA. However, the DAs and the special prosecutor's focus will always remain on ensuring that justice is served and that everyone, even celebrities with fancy attorneys, is held accountable under the law. The fancy, in this circumstance, the fancy attorneys aren't the problem, though. Filing the enhancement is the problem. So I think trying to push back on these big city lawyers is maybe not the best play. I want to know your thoughts. How does that sit with you? Is it, yeah, I understand, or is it, come on, really, this is what we're doing? I want to know your thoughts on that, particularly as we move in to taking a look at the documents filed and for the audio crew. I will talk you through it, but I just wanted to take a look at the not guilty plea by Baldwin. And if you're like, ooh, Emily, video from the courtroom? No, no, no. It's, uh, it's a document filed. 
This is the waiver of first appearance and entry of plea of not guilty filed on February 23rd, 2023. I understand that I am charged with the following offense or offenses under the law in the state of New Mexico, involuntary manslaughter. And then it lists a section in two alternatives. Those are the two charges we talked about in the other episode and earlier today, that it is two pled in the alternative, not two different charges in that it's two different crimes. I understand that I am entitled to personally appear before the court at every stage of the criminal proceedings. I have received a copy of the criminal complaint or citation or had the complaint or citation read to me. I understand the offense and offenses charged and the penalty provided by law if I'm convicted. After reading and understanding all of the above, I request the court permit me to waive a personal appearance in court for the following proceedings. First appearance, and then the checkbox of not guilty is checked electronically signed by Alec Baldwin and his attorney. Didn't show up in court, said, don't care, not coming to court, waiving my appearance, entering a guilty plea, and I'm not surprised he did. These first appearances are really just a, these are the charges against you appearance. It has to happen within a set amount of time. They will set the preliminary hearing from there. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, however, did appear via video with attorneys for their first appearance. She pled not guilty as well, but also had to talk to the court about retaining a weapon, which when you are charged with a weapons offense, generally one of the conditions of your release is that you're not to have any weapons. Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, through her attorneys, fought with the court to allow her to keep a personal weapon at her home. And we're going to talk about that after a word from our sponsor. Keeping meals easy is a priority, and now there are even more options to choose from with our sponsor, Green Chef. That's right. They have expanded their menu again. Same fresh ingredients delivered right to your door with more than 30 recipes weekly to choose from that can fit your lifestyle. So you can pick a keto meal or a paleo, vegan or vegetarian, but also you can pick their new protein-packed collection full of recipes to fit a high-protein dietary preference. Choose from three weekly menu items, each including 40 protein per serving on average. You can expect a variety of satisfying and flavorful recipes like Greek chicken salad with mint olive pompanade, enchilada spiced turkey bowls, and almond-crusted barramundi. We actually got a really incredible steak topped with a creamy shrimp. It was easy to make, and it was absolutely delicious, except I had to fight my teen off the shrimp. He absolutely loved our protein-packed meals, and we will be getting more of them. Are you ready to find out why so many love Green Chef? Well, we've got a deal for you. Go to greenchef.com slash emilybaker60 and use code emilybaker60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's right, greenchef.com slash emilybaker60. Find out for yourself why Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Thank you for keeping me eating during this trial, Green Chef. I probably wouldn't have had dinner most nights without it. Let's get back to today's episode. This reporting is coming from Law 360 with regard to what was argued in court by Gutierrez-Reed's attorney, Jason Bowles, asking the court to allow Gutierrez-Reed to retain a personal firearm in the home after receiving threats and, quote, voicemails that were very, very bad and has been required and forced, really, to take out a restraining order against the stalker. 
The attorney said that the threats started after law enforcement publicly released Gutierrez-Reed's contact information. I didn't see where that happened, if that did happen, which I don't, again, I don't doubt that this attorney wouldn't tell the truth to the court. It shouldn't have ever happened. Yes, she's accused of a crime. However, putting her personal safety at risk throughout the pendency of a court case because her private contact information wasn't redacted and kept safe. And I don't know if that was through her giving her information to police on video during her interview that was released publicly or elsewhere. But why is it so hard to just redact things out? The internet is awful when they have to search for this stuff. But putting that out there in a way that puts people at risk is just unexcusable at this point. It's 2023. We know well what the internet is like. We know how people get treated, especially when they're at the center of a case like this. She's innocent until proven guilty, just like Baldwin is, and putting her personal information on blast, it, it's just unexcusable for me. So the attorney told the court that the threats started after law enforcement publicly released Gutierrez-Reed's contact information and asked the court to allow Gutierrez-Reed to keep a gun for self-defense in her home only not to be able to possess a firearm generally outside of her home. That's reasonable. I don't think Hannah Gutierrez-Reed is a threat to the greater public. This case is negligence in the workplace. She's not working, it seems, at the moment, and probably shouldn't be through the pendency of this case. I imagine is uninsurable at this point to even have on a film set. So having a weapon for safety in the home seems to be a reasonable request. The article goes on to report that the attorney said there's no allegation that she is a danger to anyone. Ha keep reading, Emily. Having a firearm within her home, and it's for self-protection because of actions that the state took in releasing private information. That's the reason for the request. The Santa Fe District Attorney, um, Mary Carmack Altwies, not, by the way, the special prosecutor in the case. This is the district attorney for this district said that she was concerned because this case came about, at least in part, because of Ms. Gutierrez-Reed's sloppy mishandling of firearms and guns. The prosecutor went on to add, quote, and while I'm very understanding that she has a restraining order, I just don't think it's appropriate for her to have firearms. There are other ways to deal with this. She can move. Really? She can have pepper spray, a bat, something else in her house, but I adamantly oppose her having firearms. And the court denied the district attorney's, well, I guess the better way to say that is the court granted the defense request over the objection of the prosecution was disinclined to acquiesce to the prosecution's request. When someone is being stalked and they are in the middle of a public-facing case, the response they can just move doesn't even make sense as a practical matter because if someone is being stalked, especially in such a prolific digital age, that's not just going to go away, sadly, if they move. And her movement's going to be limited based on this pending criminal charge. It's not like she can leave the country um, to get physical distance from someone if, and it seems that because she has taken out a restraining order, they know at least who the person that's stalking her is. But when people are subject to internet threats, they don't always know where they are coming from, who they are coming from. And that is a topic for another day that I could rant about forever. With the rise of AI technology, you're going to start seeing these things happening with 
voices that aren't even the people that are making them, not that voice-changing technology hasn't always existed. It's just much harder to perceive now because it's gotten so much better. So I don't know. I think not just prosecutors, but the court system in general, and lawyers tend to be slow to digital trends anyway, but the court system and lawyers have to start solving some of these problems and looking at the fact that digital safety and safety online, especially if people's information is given out publicly in a way that's improper and can be protected, matters. It just matters. And whether that means the that attorneys are going to have to start submitting redacted documents to public filing systems so the contact information is only available to the court to have on file, is that truly that inconvenient? I don't think so. I tend to look at stuff the best I can to redact things out. Sometimes when it's business on business, it's hard to tell because online creators or personalities or TikTokers or whatever don't always redact out their own personal information when they file things. And that is a challenge as well. I am done ranting. (laughs) I am done ranting. We have other things we need to talk about. And I could rant about digital safety forever, but it's, I just, seeing that people aren't super mindful about this is deeply frustrating to me. Let me know how you feel. I'm going to leave it there. So to just take a topical 180 here, South Park is being sued. And no, it's not by Harry and Meghan. Though Harry and Meghan have threatened to sue South Park, but I think that that's just made people more aware of South Park. I didn't realize there were new episodes of South Park out until I saw people freaking out over South Park talking about Harry and Meghan. Have I seen the episode yet? No. Have I seen anything in the last five weeks that is not the Murdoch trial? Also, no. I think Real Housewives of New Jersey is back. I don't even know. Let's talk about Warner Brothers Discovery suing Paramount and South Park because it's actually a really interesting lawsuit. And we get a little bit of tea here. Take a guess mentally, just take a mental guess about how much Warner Discovery paid to have South Park, because I'm going to tell you in just a moment. So take a guess just real quick. This is coming from the Associated Press. Warner Brothers Discovery Inc. is suing Paramount Global, saying its competitor aired new episodes of the popular animated comedy series South Park after Warner paid for exclusive rights. Warner says it signed a contract in 2019 paying more than $500 million for the rights to existing and new episodes of the irreverent show, according to a lawsuit filed on Friday in the New York State Supreme Court. And I have those documents, and we are going to look at those lawsuits, but they are not just suing Paramount. It is Warner Brothers Discovery suing Paramount, suing South Park's corporate entity, and suing MTV. Oh, but the AP did. The AP did list one of my answers. Um, Show creators Matt Stone and Trey Parker launched the show in 1997. See, look, at the end of high school, still very much Beavis and Butthead for me. So I'm not surprised that South Park launched in 97 and then kind of picked up traction during my college years. And then by the early 2000s, I was watching a lot of South Park during law school. And with that, let's jump right into the lawsuit, which I'm going to pull up. So I'm, unless I'm interjecting, I'm reading from this lawsuit. Um, I'm not going to go through all of the charges, but I'm going to give you an overview of them. What we're looking for here is breach of contract against South Park Digital Studios, 
breach of implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing against South Park Digital Studios, deceptive practices in violation of a code section against South Park Digital Studios, Paramount, and MTV, tortious interference with contract against Paramount and MTV, and unjust enrichment against Paramount and MTV. So some causes just against South Park, some against all defendants, some against Paramount and MTV. We've talked about tortious interference with business relations and tortious interference with contract in a lot of the civil cases that I've covered on this channel, because when you're dealing with creators, this is one of the things that comes up when people go after a creator's sponsors and things like that. We've talked a little bit about the breach of implied covenant of good faith and fair dealing, but I'm happy to see it making an appearance. It feels very law school. So this all feels like just a throwback for me, like 2023 out here feeling like 2003. And I'm kind of here for it because I need a mental break from, you know, a double homicide trial. Okay. You're going to reframe this in your head, depending on how long you've been listening to my content. Here is the first line of this lawsuit. This is a case about the defendant's opportunistic repudiation of Warner HBO's exclusive streaming rights in the popular animated comedy series, South Park, for which Warner HBO agreed to pay more than half a billion dollars. Y'all, what do you hear? This is a lawsuit because of the defendant's greed. Everything old is new again. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Let's go. When Paramount decided to launch a new streaming platform of its own, Paramount Plus, I didn't even know Paramount Plus was a thing. Everything's got a goddamn streaming service. Every, everything. I can't, I just, I watch YouTube and Peacock. Because <laughs> that's where Housewives is. <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of other streaming services, but the ones I actually watch are 90% YouTube. When Paramount decided to launch a new streaming platform of its own, its priorities changed drastically, and defendants embarked on a multi-year scheme to unfairly take advantage of Warner HBO by breaching its contract and stealing its content. This is going to be very interesting. I wonder if their deal has a arbitration clause. Like, are we going to see this ultimately just forced into arbitration and we're never going to get to see the court documents again? Because I want to see what the contract says, which is not attached to this 25-page complaint, and how how they think that they're undoing it, if what they're alleging is as they are stating it, I don't know how you go back on that deal when you've, if you've sold the intellectual property of South Park, then how do you just not give it to them? I don't know. I'm fascinated. But they're alleging a multi-year scheme between South Park, Paramount, and MTV. They say the scheme, which was a which was blatantly intended to prop up Paramount Plus at the expense of Warner HBO, is the subject of this lawsuit. So what Warner HBO is saying is that they were supposed to have South Park. Paramount decided to launch Paramount Plus after they sold South Park for more than half a billion dollars, $500 million, went to presumably South Park's IP and Paramount to buy the rights to it. So how do you just say, just kidding, we're not going to give it to you and we're going to put it on our own streaming service? I don't know. They say South Park is an extremely valuable franchise. The series has aired for more than 20 years and throughout that time has remained wildly popular with its fan base, which is primarily composed of the key age 
18 to 34 demographic. Look, man, I have more money now than I did when I was 18. I am a key demographic. I'm ki- I, I realize that this is their key advertising demographic. I know, I know. Although nearly all South Park episodes first air on Comedy Central, one of Paramount's cable channels, a lucrative aftermarket, has emerged for the digital rights to this content. Similar to sitcoms such as Friends and The Big Bang Theory, the South Park franchise is anchor content on any platform and therefore central to branding and marketing for any distributor of the series. The availability of South Park episodes on a streaming platform can increase subscribers and subscription fees as well as draw in advertisers. Cognizant of this tremendous value, South Park Digital Studios, here and after SBDS, a joint venture between Paramount and South Park's creators, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, held open bids in September 2019 for the exclusive streaming rights to South Park. It was their idea to sell it. It was South Park Digital Studios' idea to sell it. SPDS publicly announced that these rights would encompass both the existing library as well as 30 new episodes for upcoming seasons 24, 25, and 26, more than 300 episodes in all. The bidding was fierce with a number of major entertainment companies vying to acquire the rights. In the end, Warner HBO had to aggressively outbid its competitors to win exclusive rights to the series, signing the contract with SPDS in October 2019, before the entire world changed. Here's what's so interesting to me, is we know that Warner has undergone massive restructuring. They seem to be at a funding issue. I'm not surprised they're bringing lawsuit to say this is lucrative intellectual property that we need on our platform. You can't just take it to Paramount+. Plus. Under its terms, Warner HBO agreed to pay more than half a billion dollars to SPDS in exchange for exclusive streaming rights to the series' entire library and three new seasons of content. In reliance on gaining these exclusive rights, HBO Max, the Warner HBO streaming platform, started touting its exclusive streaming of South Park in its advertising. Oh, they already advertised. They already told everybody. After the parties started performing under the contract, Paramount launched its own streaming platform, Paramount+. Plus. While that was certainly within Paramount's rights, on information and belief, SPDS, Paramount, and MTV Entertainment Studios then engaged in an illicit scheme to unfairly deprive, divert to its nascent streaming platform, South Park content that belonged exclusively to Warner HBO. Defendants apparently considered the success of Paramount Plus to warrant, if not require, multiple and flagrant duplicitous contortions of fact and breaches of contract, as well as other forms of misconduct described in detail below. Look, this is the lawyer sass I'm living for. Flagrant duplicitous contortions of fact. I'm putting it on a shirt. I love this turn of phrase. This is the sass that I'm here for. I'm here for sass between major outlets, between Warner and Paramount. I'm I'm here for it. I Tell me, are you also living for the sass? We need to get to how they describe the parties and more of the damage they describe below after a break to say thank you to our sponsor. I am drawing out cozy season as long as possible, and I've been doing it with my new Jenny Kane throw that you will see back on the chair. I have stolen it so that the paw nerds can't get to it to cozy up in my office while I am prepping for long days of streaming. Jenny Kane is your one-stop shop for new handcrafted furniture and home decor. You can make any home your dream home with Jenny Kane. 
Their pieces are timeless and ultra cozy. Shopping for home decor can be stressful and time consuming, but Jenny Kane has elevated style and quality to make it easy for you to pick great pieces for your home. They are known for their pillows and throws from linen and alpaca to super soft cashmere. The handcrafted textiles are versatile, durable, and perfect for any sofa upgrade or, you know, for your office, which is where I'm using it. Find your new favorite pieces at jennykane.com slash home. Emily Show listeners get 15% off your first order when you use code LAWNARD at checkout. That's 15% off your first order with code LAWNARD. J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com slash home. Promo code LAWNARD. Jenny Kane in neutrals we trust. Let's get back to today's episode. Warner HBO brings this lawsuit to vindicate its rights and recover the hundreds of millions of dollars in damages incurred as a result of defendants' misconduct. On information and belief, defendants have valued those damages in the hundreds of millions. We'll get there. They describe the parties and the companies that are involved in this and the fact that South Park Digital Studios is a limited liability um, organization existing under the laws of Delaware with a place of business in California which is a joint venture between Trey Parker, Matt Stone, and Paramount. Defendant MTV Entertainment Studios is based in New York. They go through the jurisdiction and venue in New York, and these are the factual allegations. Warner HBO is part of Warner Brothers Discovery, a leading global media and entertainment company that creates and distributes the world's most differentiated and complete portfolio of conduct and brands across film, television, and streaming. Okay. WBD is how they will be referred to as the rest of this lawsuit. WBD's iconic brands and products include HBO, HBO Max, Discovery Channel, Discovery Plus, CNN, DC, HGTV, Food Network, OWN, Investigation, Discovery, TLC, Magnolia Network, TNT, TBS, True TV, Travel Channel, Motor Trend, Animal Planet, Science Channel, Warner Brothers Pictures, Warner Brothers Television, Warner Brothers Games, New Line Cinema, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, Turner Classic Movies, Discovery in Espanol, Hogar de HGTV, and others. Hogar? I pronounced that wrong. Hogar de HGTV, and others. Why list all of those? Who are the and others that got left out? Sorry, and others. Now you know how the lawyers feel about your products. I'm surprised Magnolia Network didn't get a higher, a higher billing on that. I imagine it's driving a lot of their views. Continuing on without, without my commentary on that, Warner HBO, together with its affiliate entities, operates HBO Max, a subscription video on demand streaming platform. Yes, HBO Max features original programming from its namesake network, HBO, along with programming and films curated across WBD's portfolio of networks. Like any streaming platform, HBO Max, all of you on YouTube right now, by the way, all of you on YouTube are going, <laughs> no, that's not true. I generally turn, um, I generally don't have additional ads on the podcasts because we have our sponsors. The podcast is heavily sponsored content. And I love that our sponsors allow me to stay an independent creator where I get to curate the sponsors that I work with very heavily and say no more than yes. But if this was monetized, there is no way you would get around being served ads for HBO <laughs> streaming on YouTube. If I say a thing more than like seven times in an episode, you're going to start seeing the ads. So I'm sorry if you start getting HBO ads for listening to this episode across content. Maybe that was the plan here. It's like, ooh, people are going to cover it and then they're going to get HBO ads, um, which was just a funny thought. Okay, I got distracted. I'm distracting myself at this point. 
Continuing on, HBO Max features original programming from its namesake network and across all of their brands. Like any streaming platform, HBO Max is specifically programmed to attract and retain the broadest possible range of subscribers as the competition to obtain popular content is extremely fierce among streaming platforms. The inclusion of exclusive content offerings generally attracts premium advertisers. South Park is an extraordinarily popular animated TV series. New episodes of the series have constantly been among the top performers on HBO Max since its launch in 2020. Based on key streaming metrics such as first views, i.e. the first show a subscriber watches when they launch on the streaming platform, total hour views and viewing accounts, i.e. what number and percentage of subscribers have engaged with the series. Since its debut in 1997, South Park has been nominated for 18 Emmys, winning five, was adapted into a theatrical film. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I well remember. I'm sailing. I still say things in Cartman voice. I can't help it. It's part of my vernacular and my world. It is just part of it. Respect my authority. Um, oh, my God. Can this lawsuit work that in somewhere? Please, Emily, keep reading. But please, please say you need to respect the authority of the contract. Please be in here somewhere. Lawyers, please, for the love of the internet, Sorry. South Park has been nominated for 18 Emmys, winning five, was adapted into a theatrical film. 1999's South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, which grossed over 80 million worldwide, approximately 150 million in today's dollars. Oh, inflation. On a $21 million budget, which actually a real good performance and has been watched by tens of millions of viewers. South Park episodes currently premiere on Comedy Central, a cable network owned by Paramount. Early collaboration between Paramount and Warner. I'm just fascinated by this history. In 1998, Paramount Pictures, a Paramount affiliate that owns and operates Paramount Pictures Films and Television Studios, entered into a joint production agreement, the 1998 agreement, with Warner Brothers Entertainment, then a division of Time Warner Entertainment, now a subsidiary of WBD, right? Because corporations doing corporate things. Pursuant to the 1998 agreement, WB and PPC each had a 50% interest in the motion picture that would become South Park Bigger, longer, uncut. Pursuant to the 1998 agreement and premised on their shared ownership, the parties agreed that all subsequent productions based on the motion picture, including sequels and feature-length home video productions, would require mutual agreement in writing. SPDS offers Warner HBO an exclusive license to stream South Park episodes. Two decades later, on September 12, 2019, Paramount and its subsidiary Comedy Central issued a press release announcing that South Park's creators were extending the series three seasons and 30 episodes in a new deal with Comedy Central, taking the longest-running primetime scripted series in cable through an unprecedented 26th season, at least 320 episodes. Footnote 1, press release linked. SPDS then solicited bids for exclusive rights to stream the 30 new episodes after their Comedy Central premieres. Smart. We've now just started talking about digital streaming rights. We've talked about them in music and television as well. It is literally a whole new world. The way we consume media has changed so much. And we're going to see more of these lawsuits trying to sort it out. And then more, you know, folks like myself who just get a mic and get on the YouTubes and also compete for y'all's attention. I'm so glad it's here today to talk about this. South Park is premium content, a top performer, especially with the highly prized 18 to 34 audience that is dedicated to the show and engages in repeated viewing. Warner H. Well, I don't know about that. How many of you have watched 
either Gilmore Girls or The Office more than once. I would say that there are plenty of demographics out there that are not 18 to 34 that repeat watch television shows I just listed too. Let me know in the comments what television show you repeat watch. Is it Supernatural? Doctor Who? Let me know. I want to know. Please put it in the comments. All right, let's keep going. Warner HBO expected South Park to serve as a critical content offering that would differentiate HBO Max from other streaming platforms, attract new subbies, and no, the lawsuit doesn't say subbies. That's me. <laughs> attract new subbies by targeting a key demographic that HBO content alone did not traditionally serve and solidify its subscriber base. Warner HBO participated in the bidding process, which was extremely competitive. Footnote two. C, bidding war for South Park U.S. streaming rights could hit $500 million from Variety, and then it lists um, a few articles about it, noting, quote, elbows are being sharpened in the... Wait, wait, footnote voice. God, I've been streaming live trials so long, I forgot. Sorry, sorry. Give me one second. <clears throat> elbows are being sharpened in the fight for coveted reruns as streaming services look to bulk up their content libraries and appeal to subscribers that are faced with an ever-increasing array of direct-to-consumer entertainment choices. Footnote complete. There's a few articles linked about it. During the bidding process, South Park Digital Services, Digital SPDS, Digital something, I've already forgotten, encouraged Warner HBO to propose a flat rate per episode license fee that would apply equally to all series episodes, both the older library and the new seasons. On information and belief, SPDS knew the older library episodes of South Park were far less valuable than the new episodes. Nevertheless, SPDS told Warner HBO that it would likely reject a bid that offered differentiated pricing for older episodes as opposed to the new ones. SPTS said that it would consider only offers with the highest flat fee per episode, old or new. Warner HBO acted in reliance on that information, assuming that SPDS was making similar statements to other bidders. To calculate a single blended per episode rate as requested, Warner HBO agreed to consider the value of the existing library, the value of new episodes, and the total number of episodes by adding the relatively low per episode fee amount for the library episodes to the high per episode fee for the new ones, then dividing that by the combined number. Warner HBO would be able to offer a competitive flat fee per episode bid. I love kind of the inside, how they got to this offer number. Like where does the number 500 million even come from? And it's interesting to see how that worked out and how these deals are being negotiated for, well, our attention so that they can advertise to us while having our attention. Emily, you have three ad reads in this episode. Yep. 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 <laughs> it's the thing that it is, isn't it? Nobody's paid me $500 million of flat rate per episode. Hmm. Interesting. I'm teasing. All right, let's continue on. On information and belief, SPDS knew that its representations about the number of new episodes were dispositive in securing the highest possible bids. On information and belief, SPDS knew that if it actually intended to offer fewer than 10 episodes for each of the new seasons, the reduced number would mean a lower flat fee per episode bid. SPDS knew that more New South Park episodes would garner a higher flat fee bid. Thus, SPDS's representation of 10 new episodes per season was essential to the bids made by Warner HBO and other bidders. In October 2019, prior to receiving Warner's bid, SPDS again confirmed that the exclusive streaming license would include at least 
333 total episodes. In other words, the 300 existing library episodes and 10 new episodes for each of seasons 24 through 26. Exclusivity was so important to Warner HBO that when SPDS asked Warner whether it would consider sharing the rights to South Park with CBS, All Access, or another Paramount streamer, Warner rejected the proposition as a non-starter. In reliance on the representations by SPDS, on or about October 19, 2019, Warner proposed a flat rate license fee of $1.687 million per episode. $1,687,500 per episode, offering a total of more than half a billion dollars for the exclusive domestic streaming rights of the 333 South Park episodes SPDS had agreed to license. So this is just rights for the reruns, rights to continue streaming them. They air first on Comedy Central, and then this is exclusive streaming rights after that. SPDS licensed exclusive streaming rights to South Park and Warner Brothers. So following the intense bidding war, they win, they they write up the agreements, and that becomes the 2019 agreement. The 2019 agreement provided two types of content. The first type of content comprised long-form episodes, i.e. over 20 minutes. (laughs) I love it when over 20 minutes is long-form. That first premiered on a non-streaming platform, i.e. a Nelson-rated basic cable network such as Comedy Central or a major broadcast network such as CBS. The second type of content comprised all season 24 through 26 episodes that did not meet the premiering criteria applicable to type A licensed content, the one above, i.e. the long-form content that premiered on a streaming platform. SPDS gave Warner HBO the exclusive U.S. right to stream all long-form episodes from seasons 1 through 23, all identified in Exhibit A to the 2019 agreement, the long-form documentary Six Days to Air, The Making of South Park, all Type A licensed content for seasons 24 through 26, and selected short-form content, footnote 3. The agreement includes certain limited exceptions to exclusivity relevant only to seasons 1 through 10 and not relevant to plaintiff's claim. Under this exception, Pluto TV is permitted to stream a limited number of episodes from seasons 1 through 10 per week on an ad-interrupted basis. Streaming rights, man. The 2019 agreement specifically provided that HBO Warner streaming rights were quote-unquote exclusive. It provided the bargain for blended rate license fee of $1.6 plus million per episode. The 2019 agreement contained Exhibit A, which listed every South Park long-form episode released at the time of the execution of the agreement. Each season listed consisted of at least 10 episodes. SPDS initially suspends season 24, but produces two quote-unquote specials. (laughs) Guess what happened after 2019? Hmm. Well, the parties initially agreed that HBO Max would receive in 2020 the first episodes of New South Park season 24 in March 2020, SPDS informed HBO Warner that it would not go forward with production of season 24 as a result of the pandemic. Despite the pandemic, however, SPDS produced other South Park content. Specifically, between September 2020 and March 2021, it produced two COVID-themed specials, collectively the pandemic specials, each of which was approximately 50 minutes long 
and initially premiered on Comedy Central. Where can I go watch those? I didn't know those existed. The first, the pandemic special, aired on September 30, 2020. The second, South Park, P-A-R-Q, vaccination special, aired on March 10, 2021. Before its release, SPDS insisted to Warner HBO that the pandemic special was not the first episode of the new season, but agreed it was licensed content under the 2019 agreement. However, since the pandemic special was approximately 50 minutes in length, the parties agreed to a licensing fee of $3.3 million, double the size, double, double the size, that's not what it says, double the regular single episode fee, right, because it's a 50-minute long episode. During this period, SPDS gave various assurances to Warner HBO that season 24 episodes were coming soon. The illicit conspiracy emerges. Ooh, there's a conspiracy. Hold on, there's a footnote that I missed. Um, right before we got, I got, I jumped ahead. I got all excited by the illicit conspiracy. However, SPDS stated that season 24 would consist of a series of longer specials rather than the promised 10 episode season, which was more desirable and lucrative to Warner HBO. Footnote four. This is because HBO Max could stagger 10 22 minute episodes over a 10 week period rather than the much condensed exhibition period permitted by only two or four 50-minute episodes, HBO Max prefers to release programs with a long-established devoted fan base like South Park over a longer period. This allows for a longer marketing and promotion period and increases the time period with which subscribers are engaged with the platform. This reduces churn, subscribers canceling and restarting subscriptions, and makes it less likely that subscribers will move to a competing platform yeah, if you just release four and you release them in a month or a month and a half, people might only subscribe for a month or a month and a half and then bounce. But if you're releasing 10, people stay subscribed longer. It might be less likely to deactivate their subscription. That makes sense from their perspective. As of 2021, none of the 10 22-minute episodes for season 24 had been delivered to HBO Max under the 2019 agreement. In January 2021, Paramount announced the launch of Paramount+. Plus. Paramount decided to make South Park a core part of its strategy to grow Paramount+. Plus. Uh-oh, danger, danger. To do so, Paramount, SPDS, and MTV Entertainment, acting in concert, plan to divert as much of the new South Park content as possible to Paramount+, Plus in order to boost the nascent streaming platform. Indeed, in August 2021, less than six months after the launch of Paramount+, Plus, one Paramount+, Plus executive admitted that it intended to use South Park, quote, to help fuel Paramount Plus and, quote, franchising marquee content like South Park is at the heart of their strategy to continue growing Paramount Plus. Yeah, but the problem is it's also at the heart of the strategy for Warner HBO because they bought it. Oh, dear. He goes on to say, but this strategy ignored and indeed expressly repudiated Warner's exclusive rights to stream South Park on August 25th. In furtherance of their reported scheme, Paramount's indirect subsidiary, MTV, announced a new deal with Parker and Stone, reportedly worth more than $900 million. As Stone publicly described it, quote, we have fuck you money now, end quote. In the lawsuit, they bleeped the fuck out. I did not bleep it. The lawsuit, let's be fair to the lawsuit. The lawsuit quotes Matt Stone as saying, we have you money now. That's what the lawsuit actually says. There's a footnote. See press release MTV Entertainment Studios Inc.'s new and exclusive deal with creators Trey Parker and Matt Stone 
through 2027. Oh, dear. That deal provided, among other things, that exclusive new South Park content would premiere exclusively on Paramount Plus over the next five years. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. It's supposed to premiere on Comedy Central only and then go to HBO to stream, which is what HBO was saying. That's what they say the contract says. Different sets of lawyers are going to interpret a contract differently. This is written in the light most favorable to Warner HBO. We only have their side. We haven't seen the other side of this yet, but what Warner and HBO are saying is, hey, after it airs on cable, and who even has cable anymore? After it airs on cable, we get it for streaming. And the new deal says, oh, no, no, it's going to Paramount Plus for streaming for the next five years. And they go on to then say, even though HBO Max had exclusive U.S. streaming rights to all long-form South Park episodes through season 26, two, SPDS had the obligation to offer Warner HBO any type B licensed content during the term which means they had right of first refusal. And three, SPDS had yet to provide HBO Max with a single episode of South Park season 24, having repeatedly told HBO Max that the pandemic specials were not part of season 24. Rather than honor its obligations to Warner HBO, SPDS acting in concert with Paramount and MTV engaged in a campaign of verbal trickery designed to circumvent the terms of the 2019 agreement. To accomplish this, defendants used grammatical sleight of hand That's also a great turn of phrase. I like the writing of these lawyers characterizing new content as movies, films, events to sidestep the contractual obligation. Specifically, MTV publicly announced that under the Paramount Plus deal, 14 made for streaming movies as opposed to episodes or events would premiere on Paramount Plus starting with two quote unquote films in 2021. MTV in coordination with Paramount and SPDS characterized the programming that would premiere on Paramount Plus as quote unquote movies or films in a calculated and deliberate attempt to distinguish them from the pandemic specials that were included as part of licensed content under the 2019 agreement. Moreover, the 14 made-for-television, quote, movies that SPDS promised to Paramount Plus were substantially similar in kind to the pandemic specials that had been provided to Warner HBO as licensed content. SPDS licenses two supersized South Park episodes to Paramount Plus in violation of the 2019 agreement. On October 27th, 2021, Paramount and MTV issued a press release announcing two South Park events that would premiere exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. It stated the first event, South Park post-COVID, would premiere on Paramount+, Plus in the United States on November 25th, 2021, and the second event would premiere December 2021. Paramount's announcement shocked Warner and HBO for three reasons. Reason number one, SPDS had not yet provided Warner HBO with any season 24 episodes. Reason number two, SPDS had told Warner HBO in June 2021 that the next South Park episodes it would receive would be set in the future post-COVID, just like the post-COVID content being provided directly to Paramount+. And reason number three, calling the post-COVID content, quote, events, did not vitate SPDS's obligation to first offer Warner HBO the option to stream that content as it had with the pandemic specials. Prior to the press release, SPDS had not given Warner HBO any notice of its plan to divert post-COVID content to Paramount+. Plus. Can you imagine the shit hitting the fan at Warner HBO the day that press release went out? Just picture that in your mind. The corporate the corporate phone calls, the, the texting, the what the fuck of it all. That must have been a very interesting day. Shortly after MTV's announcement and after previously telling Warner HBO that the pandemic specials were not part of season 24, 
SPDS reversed its position, deciding not only that the first two pandemic special were in fact part of season 24, but they would also constitute four episodes of season 24. SPDS further assured Warner that it would still get the remaining six episodes of season 24. So they redefined what an episode was and that those would be delivered in the first quarter of 2022, reaffirming its recognition of Warner's right to receive them. On December 8th, 2021, Paramount Plus at MTV issued another press release on information and belief at defendant SPDS's direction or with its permission announcing yet another South Park episode was being provided to Paramount Plus, making clear the defendants were again depriving Warner HBO of its rights so that it could, quote, fuel Paramount Plus. Specifically, they announced that the second of this year's exclusive South Park events entitled South Park Post-COVID, The Return of COVID, would premiere on Paramount Plus in the United States later that month. It had become evident that Paramount sought to use post-COVID content to boost Paramount Plus's subscribership in flagrant disregard of Warner's contractual rights. They said that these so-called events were substantially similar in format and length to the pandemic specials, and that this was not defendants' only duplicity with, I really do enjoy the writing, with regard to the post-COVID content when MTV Paramount Plus announced the post-COVID content they had initially characterized the episodes as movies. However, when Warner Brother pointed out the exploitation of movie sequels to South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, <laughs> that required Warner Brothers written consent under the 1998 agreement. Oh, somebody was real happy when they found that 1988 agreement. They were like, hey, remember when we signed that agreement back in 1998 and we said that any movies that were going to be sequels to South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, required Warner Brothers written consent. Yeah, that still stands, my guy. So they can't be movies. Then they say Paramount and SPDS changed the characterization of the post-COVID content from movies to events. Huh. They allege that the shenanigans continue. SPDS again breaches the 2019 agreement. Defendants' machinations did not stop there. It should be shenanigans. I feel like I can call shenanigans. After repeatedly claiming that the pandemic specials did not constitute episodes of season 24, they reversed course for the third time in January 22 and announced that those two episodes alone would count as the entirety of season 24 and that season 25 would consist of only six episodes in direct violation of the agreement that each new episode under the 2019 agreement or each new season under the 2019 agreement would include at least 10 episodes for a total of 30 new episodes. They're like, oh, no, no, that counts. We're done. Oh, my goodness. Uh, as of February 9th, 2023, notwithstanding the clear terms of the 2019 agreement, <laughs> lawyers can make any agreement not clear, though. SPDS has provided Warner HBO with only eight new South Park episodes, the two pandemic specials that claim constitute the entirety of season 24, and six episodes for season 25. SPDS provided Warner HBO with the first episode of season 26 on February 9th, 2023. The second episode of season 26 on February 16th, 2023. Prior to that, SPDS had not provided Warner HBO with any new South Park content since the final episode of season 25 premiered on March 17th, 2022. On information and belief, season 26 will consist of only six rather than 10 episodes. Yet since announcing its massive deal with Paramount Plus, in August 2021, they have provided for Paramount Plus four supersized South Park episodes with the same format and similar length as the two supersized pandemic specials that went to Warner. 
Moreover, pursuant to the MTV deal with Stone and Parker, SPDS is scheduled to provide an additional 10 supersized South Park episodes of Paramount Plus over the next five years, including at least four during the term of the 2019 agreement. This is further diversion of content to Paramount Plus that should have been going to Warner HBO and further dilution of the exclusivity that Warner HBO expressly bargained for. And then they're getting into the injury, the financial harm done. They say that since announcing its $900 million deal with Paramount Plus in August 2021, SPDS has provided Paramount Plus with four supersized South Park episodes of the same format and similar length as the two COVID specials. Finally, Paramount and SPDS have been unfairly enriched by their own deliberate misconduct, meaning they're gaining a benefit. And this is some of that benefit. They say, for example, during Paramount's Q4 2021 earnings call, CEO said that the company added 9.4 million new streaming subscribers in Q4 alone, 80% of them on Paramount+. Plus. Footnote 6, which then links to the transcripts of the global earnings call. Because when you're a public company, all that shit is public. Paramount Plus similarly experienced a huge uptick around the time The Streaming Wars Part 1 aired, June 2, 2022. The CEO reported that Paramount Plus added 4.9 million global subscribers, touting Paramount Plus's status as one of the fastest-growing premium streaming services and attributing the growth to the strong performance, including by our latest South Park special, South Park, The Streaming Wars. I have to go watch that. I have to go find it. I have to. Is South Park The Streaming Wars about what this lawsuit is about? I need to know. We're going to have to do a part two because I'm going to have to go watch it. Maybe we'll watch The Streaming Wars and give you a breakdown in our members content because now it is The Streaming Wars about this. I need to know. Let me know in the comments if you know. South Park fans, tell me, please. It goes on to allege that as a result of the defendant's misconduct, Warner HBO has incurred and continues to incur damages in excess of $200 million. And then it gets into the causes of action, which I previously listed. Let's go to the prayer for relief. The prayer for relief is judgment against SPDS on the first, second, and third causes of action, judgment against Paramount and MTV on third, fourth, and fifth, an award to Warner HBO of all damages, including but not limited to compensatory, consequential, and disgorgement of profits, punitive damages, attorney's fees and costs, and a demand for a jury trial from February 24th, 2023, if I didn't already say that. So streaming rights are a massive area of revenue. I'm not surprised that we're seeing a battle over the streaming rights. This is just not the first lawsuit I expected to see in 2023 for South Park. I didn't, but it's the first one that we're seeing. So let me know if you are watching the new seasons of South Park. Let me know what you think of all of this, because I we've only got the complaint, but if the contract is as they're representing it to be, I can absolutely understand why we're in a battle. Imagine paying $500 million for something and then having it just yoinked and they're being like, just kidding. That's not actually what we're giving you. Very frustrating stuff indeed. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one. And with that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being honored. It is time to say goodbye. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. It's time for me to go find the streaming wars. It might have to wait till after this trial, truth be told, but I will go find it. So with that, may your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. 
May you be streaming new episodes of South Park, apparently. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Law Nerd.